Welcome to another episode, and thank you so much for tuning in to the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Thank you so much for downloading, subscribing. As we wind up this year, 2020, one of the bright spots in my life has been able to join you every Monday and Thursday and bring you this podcast. Today is it's just like every other. We bring you an awesome guest, somebody who's brilliant, my brother, Dr. Jelani Cobb. But before I get to him, I want to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart. I want to talk about specifically the spike in food insecurity we've seen as a result of COVID and the role of the Department of Agriculture in fighting hunger and the right person to lead the Department of Agriculture in a Biden-Harris administration. Listen to this. By the end of this year, more than 50 million people could experience food insecurity, according to Feeding America. That's one in every six Americans and one in every four children in this country. Almost a 50% increase over 2019. A Northwestern University study in June found that food needs in the United States had doubled and tripled for households with children, explaining the long lines you're seeing at food banks across the country that will only get worse as relief programs and unemployment insurance expires at the end of the month. Now, as we look at this Biden-Harris transition, it's worth noting that the Department of Agriculture is the tip of the spear in fighting food hunger in the United States. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, or more colloquially understood as the Food Stamp Program, is run by the Department of Ag. So are the school nutrition programs that many of our children rely on for their meals. The Department of Ag also supports rural economic and housing development, trade promotion for American food and commodities, forestry, and programming for land-grant colleges and universities, including our public land-grant historically black colleges and universities like South Carolina State, Florida A&M, and Southern. This is also all in addition to farm policy, which is only a small share of what the department actually does. So it stands to reason that someone like Ohio Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, a lifelong advocate for federal food programs, sustainable farm policy, fair labor practices for farm labor, and HBCUs would be an easy choice to lead the Department of Ag. But in classic Democratic fashion, it's not so easy. Why? Because Democratic administrations, with the key exception of President Clinton and Mike Espy, traditionally view the Department of Agriculture as where you put white, red state Democratic governors as the, quote, face of rural America, the same way housing and urban development and transportation have been traditionally viewed as black cabinet roles. I think it's time we move past all of that. The rural Americans that voted for Joe Biden over-indexed black, as rural white Americans voted against Joe Biden in record numbers. A white, red state Democrat as Ag Secretary won't change the dynamic of white rural voters voting for Republican presidential candidates. So why wouldn't you put a lifelong anti-hunger advocate to lead the agency that is the first line of defense in fighting hunger during a pandemic? If the choice is between your most loyal voters, black women, and the demographic probably least likely to vote for you in rural white Americans, why is this even close? Well, because Democrats obsess over voters that vote against them. I talk often about how the Democratic campaign playbook is broken, but the playbook for governing is broken as well. You dance with the person who took you to the dance. Republicans get it. Democrats don't. It shouldn't be that hard. Marsha Fudge is the choice. And that's that on that. Now on to my conversation with my good friend, brother, professor, historian, politician, journalist, Dr. Jelani Cobb.
I want to thank you so much for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. I want everybody to uh, meet my good friend and one of the people that I try to pattern my my scholarship in writing after, although I haven't reached that level yet. Uh, none other than Jelani Cobb. Good afternoon, my brother. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Every show, we start our conversation with our guests, having them walk us through the arc of their career. And yours is interesting because you're a journalist and a historian. So walk us through your career from when you finished your PhD at Rutgers to the work that you're doing now at Columbia and with The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. So I think it actually starts earlier in order to make sense of it, you know, because at Howard, I went to Howard University you know, for undergrad. And so I was an English major and a history major. You know, like technically I was a history minor, but I loaded up on so many history classes. I think it wound up being a double major. and um, and so I didn't know what I wanted to pursue at, you know, when I was a senior and everybody was kind of deciding where they wanted to go. And part of me was interested in journalism and part of me wanted to pursue history. And I think that I had this false dichotomy that I had to be either or, uh-huh. and I just never chose. I just kept doing <laughs> things. When I finished, uh, at, at Howard, I worked in local newspapers uh, for a while, alternative papers, a small paper called One, and another uh, local paper called the Washington City Paper, an alternative weekly. And, you know, that was what I did. And then I went to graduate school and did a PhD in American history and spent a decade, more than a decade, as an academic historian doing occasional journalistic things. Uh, and then Around the middle of my career, I started doing uh, a little bit more of the journalism stuff. So I, I say I was a historian who did sometimes did journalism, and now I'm a journalist who sometimes does history. <laughs> so you balance that. A lot of your work centers on the intersection of race and so many other things. How does your formal training as both a historian and a journalist inform that work? Oh, it's 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 at the center of it. You know, because I think the thing that history gave me was an understanding of how central race was to the United States. The United States is illegible without understanding that. Like you don't get to, like a lot of the other things about this country don't make sense. And, you know, one of the things that I was taught, I'm always talking to my students about is that the geography of the country reflects race and the prerogatives of race. You know, you don't get, you know, Florida. You know, Florida came into the union because Andrew Jackson seized it from the Spanish because it was in order to cut off an escape route for people who were enslaved in Georgia and South Carolina. You know, Maine came into the Union as part of the Missouri Compromise to balance out a slave state with a free state. California came into the Union uh, as part of the brokering of a stronger fugitive slave clause. You know, like all of these, the expansion of this country, you know, Kansas and Nebraska are tied to it, the Texas Territory, the Louisiana Territory. All these things wound up being connected to this issue of slavery and then and slavery being connected to this fundamental issue of who, of who is human. And so... You start with the geography. <laughs> Before we even get to the politics, you can't understand the geography unless you understand race. And so there's that part of it. And then the, the journalistic part of it has always been interested, you know, as I say, in the implications of the history. You know, we're still living this out, being manifest in different kinds of parts of our current affairs. Uh, and so I've always been interested in that dialogue. So it, it finally... Looks like we've closed the the chapter on this year's presidential election. I mean, we have. The president may not have, but for the most part, we have. Uh, I want to talk about black voters, black candidates, and the Democratic Party. We saw two black candidates in the primary, Corey and Kamala, not gain any traction. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but we also saw black voters decisively swing the election for the eventual nominee and our president-elect. What were your takeaways from the 2020 Democratic primary in terms of the future viability of black candidates running for president when black voters seem to hold the keys to the nomination, but still seem skeptical of black presidential candidates not named Barack Obama? Well, it was skeptical of black presidential candidates named Barack Obama. <laughs> That's we, true. I always tell that. people, I always tell people the story of when I was on, uh, I was on a call with uh, David Axelrod, Michelle mm-hmm. Obama, Dick Harputlin, and a few others. And I said that we have two fears in South Carolina. Black folk are afraid that one, uh, white voters aren't going to vote for them, and two, they're going to kill them. And so yeah. we we didn't we didn't even see that traction until after Iowa. Yeah, that's right. But Iowa is central to it. And I'll tell you this, you know, Bakari, I had been, I lived in Georgia at the time, as you know, you went to Morehouse and I was a professor at Spelman uh, at that point. And, you know, one of the reasons that he had an advantage, that Barack Obama had an advantage in South Carolina, was that he had this massive army of supporters in Atlanta. Yeah. And, you know, that three hour ride, four hour ride, whatever that, what it was, for people to get into South Carolina, they were like, let's do it. Yeah. Uh, and so that day when they were, you know, canvassing ahead of the primaries, you know, I went to South Carolina twice, you know, for the campaign. And the first time I went, I had never seen anything like this before. You know, people were at the campaign office on Northside Avenue, Northside Drive, and it looked like an army massing for an invasion. <laughs> they later told me, they later told me that they had rented every van in Atlanta, but if you wanted to rent a van in Atlanta, you could not get one because the Obama campaign had all of them. That's crazy. Um, and so that, you know, army that went into South Carolina, I was part of it. And I have to tell you, like, we heard people straight out say that, you know, straight out say uh, there were black folks saying they would not vote for him because, quote, he needed to be around to raise those girls. Oh, I know. Yeah. I mean, my dad, a lot of my daddy is 76 now. And I guess when Barack Obama got elected, what is that, 14 years ago? No, I'm tripping, my math. 12 years ago, so he mm-hmm. was only 64 then. But his generation and above, they were all just, because they had seen so many of their heroes become martyrs. That's right, that's right. And they, they didn't want to live through that again. John Lewis told me that. Yeah, he said, I, I interviewed him around the Obama thing, and he said, you know, you have to understand that we have never recovered from the losses of people we saw, you know? He said, those of us who were close to Dr. King never recovered from that. And he says, that's not a reason to to operate out of that mindset now. But he said that straight out, like, you have to understand who you're dealing with. Let me ask you this question as a as a, a retired, recovering legislator, politician, whatever. <laughs> Did Barack Obama create a standard for black candidates running for president that will be impossible for future candidates to reach? I just feel like we hold people to this Barack Obama standard and even crazier we hold them to the Barack and Michelle standard that you yeah. got to have this picture perfect thing of both. Yeah. I mean, I think that what will happen in time, you know, the historian part of me thinks that over the course of years, Obama will be humanized. You know, the, the idealized version of him will be replaced with a more human version of him. It, you know, isn't that least. counterintuitive though? That, that And you, you're the historian, but it always feels like history works the, the further you get away from your accomplishments or the further you get away from your office or the further you get away from whatever it may be, the kinder history looks upon you. No, not necessarily. You know, sometimes people get further away from history. You know, they, you start out looking great. And as, as time goes on, people go like, yeah, you know, 
Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Um, but the reason I think that, you know, it'll, it'll change with Obama is that people had this emotional investment in him from the outset, you know, or if you looked at, he compared himself to Lincoln, you know, in these ways. And that happened in both directions of Lincoln. Like Lincoln was idealized, you know, after his death. And now there've been much more sober assessments of him, and certainly by African-Americans. Yeah. Um, and then the other side of him, the mythology has just grown, you know, even larger of him being this kind of almost deity figure in American history. So I think that process happened in both directions with him. But I think we have the idealization of Obama but we haven't really kind of grappled with the implications of his legacy because we don't really know what all those are. We're only one presidential term out from when he was in office. And so I think that we'll see that a little bit more clearly over time. But back to the idea of you know, what he meant and whether that had implications for other people running for office, I think that one, you know, it was really interesting to me, you know, that Kamala Harris struggled to get support among black voters in the primary. But when Joe Biden picked her as vice president, the candidacies, his candidacy's popularity surged Correct. with black people, no less, you know, and uh, money and money and, and money and money. Right. And so what I think people were saying, you know, with Booker and Harris was that they were looking at Trumpism and the reactionary direction that this country has slid into, you know, in the wake of Obama and saying, I don't think that these people are going to go for you. It's not about you. It's not about, you know, I, I might like you. I might think that you're great and so on. But I think that Joe Biden was the white man that black people thought other white people could get behind. And there was a little bit more skepticism about whether or not white voters would get behind um, Booker or Harris in that way. So again, you're reasserting my common theme and notion that black voters are some of the more practical voters on the planet. That's right. Yeah. So I saw someone describe uh, the Trump vote count on, on social media as this. And by the way, I, I don't ascribe to the notion that all people who voted for Donald Trump are racist. But mm -hmm. this Twitter user said uh, that the Trump vote count is the most accurate census of racists in America. And as of this taping, uh, that number is 73.9 million. Mm -hmm. We have talked a lot about the over 80 million voters that, that Joe Biden got. But what do we make of the nearly 74 million Americans who have seen the past four years and want four more of them? How do we move forward with those voters? Yeah. So, one, I don't think that all those people are racist, but I think they fall into three categories. They're either people who are racist, people who don't are not bothered by racism, or people who don't know how to identify racism, don't know what racism is. Is that, um, is that, is that a willful ignorance or is that like a real life thing? No, I mean, I think it could be willful. I think it could be a thing. Like there, there are folk I know who believe themselves to be well-intentioned, you know, but they don't think that Donald Trump is racist. And they, they don't really have the same sort of operating metric for what constitutes racism. And so, you know, you're going like, oh, okay, this is, you know, um, he's just a guy who's maybe rough around the edges and so on. You know, we heard all of those conversations, but I think that his voters fall into those categories. But moving forward with those folk, I have to just be honest with you. And, you know, talking about South Carolina, you know, this is familiar to you. Like so much of South Carolina and Mississippi and Louisiana. And, and, Georgia, and Georgia, not in Atlanta. 
and Georgia, right. So much of their politics are driven by the fact that those are the places that have the largest black populations. You know, they were so virulently opposed to civil rights movements and they have kind of had the ancestral legacy of being part of those anti-civil rights kind of uh, notions in American politics going in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even going further back in their history. We're just talking about kind of modern incarnations. And that's kind of where their politics descend from. And so when you look at the fact that the country is now dealing with questions that were Louisiana questions or Mississippi questions or South Carolina questions, the questions about who has the largest black populations or largest populations of non-white people and the attending shock of paranoia that has demographic paranoia that has come with it is that I think it's going to be very hard to work with those people. And I think that the other part of it is that the somewhat of a concession that they seem to be leaning toward, you know, from the Trump people has already achieved what it wanted, which was to delegitimize yeah. Joe Biden. His people think that this is a president who shouldn't be in office, just as Barack Obama wasn't, you know, a citizen, so he should not have been in office. And so it's given them the cover to be completely obstructionist for the next four years in a way that we saw with Obama. I want to direct listeners to a piece you wrote in The New Yorker right before this election, where you talk about the enduring legacy of Trumpism long after Trump. I wanted to pull out this quote. You say, but the idea of a Biden administration turning the corner on the volatile contempt that Trump has unleashed is just as unduly optimistic as Trump's full notion that the novel coronavirus is going to one day just vanish. Mm -hmm. The Biden campaign's pitch was about a return to normalcy, but you take this notion of a return to normalcy to task. Why? Well, I hope they didn't believe it. You know, like you know, politicians <laughs> say things, you know, they have to say them, you know, and you kind of reading the tea leaves going like, oh, yeah, they had to say that to get elected. But I really hope they don't believe it because it flies in the face of what Biden's own experience was in the Obama administration. But but I, I this is where I would disagree with you, because I truly believe Biden thinks they will treat him differently because he's a white man. And he mm -hmm. saw the struggles that Barack Obama had, and he understands, which give him credit for, that a lot of those struggles were rooted in race. And when I say struggles, I mean dealing with Mitch McConnell's of the world, et cetera. Yeah, except remember back to when Toni Morrison wrote that piece in The New Yorker and said that Bill Clinton was the first black president? I do remember that piece. We're yeah. still living with that piece today. We're, we're still living with that. But the thing is, what, what Morrison said was not that people, like, over the course of time have just kind of kind of presumed a meaning to it that she didn't really, you know, ascribe at the beginning when she wrote it, which was that, you know, Clinton plays a saxophone. He's like comfortable in black churches. He's blah, blah, blah. So he's so intimate with us that he constitutes the first black president. And that wasn't what she was saying. She said that Clinton had been so painted as being so closely associated with black people's interests that they just treated him the way they would treat a black man. And so we've known from any kind of glancing examination of American history that you know, kind of the most virulent reactionary racists would sacrifice other white people uh, who they thought were too favorable to black people, you know, the N-word lovers, you know, they call yeah. them. And so they have successfully kind of even begun making those arguments about Biden being in the pocket of black folk. 
And when Biden made that statement, which I thought was a wholly like acceptable, reasonable and appropriate thing to say when he said that the black community has always been there for him and he will be there for us. Mm-hmm. I was like famous last words, because that is exactly what they want. That is exactly they want to paint you as a vector of black people's interests. And then we wind up being right back to Bill Clinton. So I want to unpack. I want you to unpack one more quote from that piece. And I quote, on issue after issue, Obama sought to carve out a non-ideological middle ground in order to bring Republicans on board and negotiate deals. And as Republican intransients on immigration, climate change, health care, and the Merrick Garland Supreme Court nomination attest, the GOP was not opposed to Obama's policy ideas. It was opposed to Obama. Trump made that opposition the central theme of Republican policy. There is no reason to believe that the situation would change if Biden takes office. Public statements notwithstanding, I think it's fair to assume that some Biden folks know this too, as you were stating, especially if we don't win both seats in Georgia in January. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What should the playbook be for navigating and ultimately defeating Trumpism if you're Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and the Democratic Party? You know... (sighs) So this is you diag- you've diagnosed it to a T. Right. So how, how I mean you we we all know we got cancer. So what we do to go fix it? Right. So here's the thing, right? We have this fight that's happening not so behind closed doors uh between the the progressive wing of the party and the more moderate wing of the party. And you know the the moderates are all saying, you know, it was the progressives that are responsible for us losing, you know, these House seats, for us not being more viable in these Senate races. Uh, We won the presidency. Uh, Some part of that was from Republicans defecting, you know, voting lower on the lower parts of the down ticket, um, but not voting Republican on the presidential ticket and so on. And so they are trying to carve out a path through the middle. I think there is a middle ground, but it, it, it remains to be seen whether this administration can pull it off or whether there is, you know, a politician that is capable of, you know, putting together this kind of coalition and making this kind of argument. You know, for, for better or worse, the progressive wing of the party has been AOC-ized. You know, there's the Bernie people or whatever, but they're basically like, you know, there's a Latina from New York, the Bronx, will be all these things that we hate. And there is the idea that, I mean, there is the the question of can you put together the kind of populist ground sort swell that pulls these, I'm going to say it, working class white people. Uh. um, I know. know, know. Um, At least you added white folk. I mean, most people just say working class and or rural. And I'm like, you mean white folk. Right, that's what you're talking about. You have people of color in all those categories. Exactly. The American working class is, you know, predominantly black and brown at this point. Correct, yeah. Um, But you also, you need enough of that coalition to be able to say around the margins that you could actually make a difference, uh, you know, here. It's it's fascinating that for all of these years, um, Trump has been been able to make this case that he is, you know, a man of the people, while steadily just the upward spiral, you know, of uh, the income and, and the upper echelons, you know, the appropriating of resources to the places and people who have this super abundance of them already. And no one has been willing to believe that 
that their pocket is being picked. And so I think that, you know, I always, always look at Reverend Barber, William Barber, as an example of this, because he's actually doing that kind of work to say, look, look, there are these things that we're trying to argue about, these things that we're trying to organize on, and, you know, we're being caught up in these, these uh, disagreements that allow all of us to wind up being more effectively fleeced. So I, I want to just switch gears real quick before I get you out of here. I want to I want to talk about your recent frontline documentary, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. whose whose vote counts. Tell the listeners I watched it. Tell the listeners what this documentary is about. So back in 2018, you know, we were looking at the coming presidential race, and we were like, this is going to have a lot of like voter turnout is going to be the key here and voter suppression is going to be a big part of this election. And we just started saying like, we should do something on it. We should, you know, look at how uh, voter suppression has evolved. A lot of people know the Selma story. They saw Ava DuVernay's film or they know John Lewis's story or, you know, the way that we got to the Voting Rights Act in this country. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fewer people know about what has happened since the Voting Rights Act has been eviscerated. And I think even fewer people have paid attention to the way that what was once a regional problem in the South is now a national problem. You know, because the problems that are associated with the South, you know, are oh, now. Oh, no. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, Scott Walker was the was the was was at the forefront of voter suppression. I mean, he harkened back to George Wallace and Lester Maddox. Yeah, that's right. But but if you, if you remember that film, Birth of a Nation, you know, what D.W. Griffith was saying in that film you know, which people like they get caught so caught up on the racism that they don't actually understand what he was saying. And what D.W. Griffith was saying was that, look, you can be he's saying two white northerners. You can be as condescending and contemptuous of us as you want. But sooner or later, you're going to have to come around to handling your Negroes the same way that we handle ours. And he was right. <laughs> in, in many regards, he was right. That's that's the scarier part of that film, you know, that he was making this prediction about how race would operate nationally. And it seems to have held up in a lot of fundamental ways. And so the film was looking at voter suppression as one of those aspects. You know, we specifically did not go to Mississippi. We did not go to Alabama. I noticed that. We didn't go to any of those places in the Deep South. We went to Wisconsin, you know, to say, like, look, this is where... Uh, this voter suppression thing is is really, you know, the laboratory you know, for how it's being developed. And this is a former union state, not only a former union state, it's a state where the GOP was founded. And the GOP was founded by these disgruntled Wisconsin farmers who were upset about the expansion of slavery. Yeah. And so, so that's, but, but that's the in, irony here. In your work putting this documentary together, what should be... What should we be doing to fix elections in this country? You again, if I you, you went and you you pointed out these issues. So what can be done to to fix these issues with with voting in this country? Yeah, there's a lot. So I think that you know HB one, the the House bill um, that you know was passed, and obviously like everything else, you know the Senate with, with good ideas going to die. Um, it's that bill. That bill does a lot, I think, to to modernize, because even outside of the issue of voter suppression, we need to modernize our fundamental approach to our elections. Uh, And so that bill has standards around, uh, you know, election machines and uh, the levels of vulnerability that they, you know, should not have 
it has standards around, uh, you know, having people have access to voting, you know, the, the days off so that they can go vote, you know, all the kinds of like an omnibus thing about uh, approach to repairing our broken electoral system. The other thing that I think uh, really needs to happen is that we, we need to have a reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. And that's going to be a long fight, but it's something that we should fight for. I mean, I think we have to fight for it, even if it's not just in the honor of people like John Lewis. I mean, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act is, is one of the things that's happened over the last decade, which I believe is- Na- A national, I should say, a national Voting Rights Act. Oh, we don't need a Voting Rights Act that just covered the South, the way the old yeah, one Correct. Uh, a national Voting Rights Act. Correct. So my, my last question to you is this. Last week, we lost an icon in David Dinkins, the only black mayor mm-hmm. of New York City. I always think that there were parallels between Dinkins and Obama- Mm-hmm. And that they were elected uh, as these historic unity figures, but were followed by Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump, mm-hmm. two people who were elected because of their explicit appeals to white supremacy and as rebukes of the black men that preceded them. You're mm-hmm. a native New Yorker. So talk about the Dinkins legacy and what the Dinkins-Obama historical similarities tell us about white voters. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes from, you know, one that you know Dinkins was a great example for Obama, you know, because he was an executive whose constituency was 8 million people. You know, the mayor of New York City is much more like a governor than any than right. anyone else, you know, although you don't have the same sort of authority as the governor does. But in terms of the scale of your responsibilities, you know, here's David Dinkins is the best example, you know, of a person operating on that. He's also operating in this polyglot environment where the people from all sorts of backgrounds and then you got to see like the kind of laboratory of how white voters were. One of the things is that we don't even have to get to Giuliani's election to see the questions around white voters in New York City. We could look at Dinkins' own election. You know, New York is a solidly democratic city uh, with these margins that were huge that Dinkins should have kind of walked easily to a victory over Giuliani. Uh, instead, you know, he pulled out a respectable win, but it was much closer than it, it really should have been mathematically. And that was because white voters, white Democrats bolted. You know, white Democrats in Dinkins' own election bolted. And so he was caught in the same sort of vice. The criticisms that you heard about David Dinkins in his term were the same sort of criticisms you heard uh, about Obama, which is that he was congenitally even-handed. He kept trying to kind of build consensus and Sometimes people think that you know, maybe you need to just say, you know, forget those people and go for what you know, because yeah. otherwise, you know, then there's, the issue is not with your policies. The issue is with you. The other thing that I think is important to remember is that um, the New York City Police Benevolent Association tweeted uh, uh, this ridiculous memorial uh, saying that David Dinkins was this important figure and so on and so forth. You know, for those of us who are longtime New Yorkers or observers of politics in this way, they remember in 1993, 1992, actually, uh, when the New York Police Benevolent Association held a rally in front of City Hall where 4,000 cops, overwhelmingly white cops, stood outside in front of City Hall calling the mayor a nigger, calling him a washroom attendant holding up signs that were uh, indicating like all sorts of kind of racist caricatures of him. And that demonstration was led by Rudolph Giuliani. Who also tweeted, love and adoration. That's right. <laughs> That's right. 
And that was that was the incarnation. That was the first Trump rally. Oh, wow. Man, uh, Jelani, I just want to say thank you for spending some time with me. And as, as I want listeners to, to really pay attention to the fact that it's quiet in our backgrounds. Uh, the reason it's quiet over here for me is because uh, I always try to tape around noon because my, my twins are asleep. And uh, Jelani uh, made an effort to go to his office today. So we're twin dads. So right. the best, you have boys or girls? Boys. Two boys. boys. Two boys. Mm-hmm. See, I got the best of both worlds and I'm done. I, I told my wife that there's no more for me. I took the uh, the sweet peas out the freezer and, and sat on my sofa for, for three days after these babies came. <laughs> Good for you. you know, <laughs> the, the pandemic has um, kind of gotten in the way of that, but you know, that's on the list. I know it's on the list. Thank you, brother. God bless you and your family and those twins. Thank you you so much. So on my outro, I wanted to talk about the fact that today is Cyber Monday. So I'm encouraging everyone to find a small business today to support. And because this is my show, I'm going to encourage you to support Black-owned businesses if you can today on Cyber Monday and every day. And so here are a few businesses that I would ask all of you all to support today and this holiday season. For both men and women's hair care needs, support my wife's company, Rucker Roots. They've got all kinds of fantastic Cyber Monday specials that you can find at www.ruckerroots.com. For all of your holiday apparel and gift wrapping needs, support my friends Jackie and Sean Rogers at Green Top Gifts. They've been featured everywhere from Oprah Magazine to NBC News, so go check them out at www.greentopgifts.com. For all my friends in the metro Atlanta area, get those family pictures for the Christmas card from my brother Joe Carlos and his photography studio. Go on ahead and book an appointment at www.joecarlosphotography.com. And for all your other Cyber Monday needs, check out melanoidexchange.com. That's melanoidexchange.com, where you can find hundreds of Black-owned online businesses for everything you can imagine. COVID has threatened so many businesses, particularly our Black-owned ones. So let's do our part to keep them open this holiday season. Thank you again for joining me for another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. And I'll see you all on Thursday.